Open up your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, the last chapter, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. And again, this morning is it's topical. It's preaching. It is, I believe, a word from the Lord for the Bridge Fellowship. Verse 13, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God. And keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Father, we lift up uh, our hearts to You this morning and we just hold up Your Word to You, Father. And I pray especially, Father, because I'm going about this topically, that that You will reign in Your Word today. I know it's a lot easier to get out away from from Your Word and off into the, the thoughts of man when we're in the topical arena, but Lord, I just ask You to keep us grounded in truth, keep us grounded in Jesus and open our eyes, Father, to the message that you have for this fellowship. There, there may be, Lord, many things that you're speaking to the church across this nation and in this world. And this morning, any number of things that you're saying in, in unique places. But I'm praying, Father, that you will speak to each of our hearts in the Bridge Fellowship this morning. For what you're about to do, for what you want to accomplish in us, through us, by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to You in this time to hear from You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had it down. I knew exactly how to look studious while being fast asleep. You know, how to catch a nap in a sermon. And there there was a way to do it. I learned it from our worship leader. (laughs) Growing up, you know, the old... Arm tucked under, hand on face, where you're looking like you're thinking, but everyone behind you doesn't see that your eyes are shut very tight. And you actually can sleep like this. You should try it sometime. Not in here. But I wonder really how many things I missed the Lord saying as a young man growing up. We've spent the last five weeks now listening to Koheleth, the preacher, Listening to him preach. Twelve chapters worth of preaching in the book of Ecclesiastes. But if all that we have learned is how to recognize the distance between Christianity and humanism, we will have slept through the sermon. There's a very clear difference here. And he speaks with the voice of the humanist. And so much of what Koheleth says comes from a humanistic perspective. Remember, we talked about this five weeks ago. He put on the mask of the humanist and began speaking language, which for Christians is often very confusing. We read this book and he says certain things and we say, what? That doesn't seem to fit with the rest of Scripture. Well, the reason it doesn't seem to fit is because it's a persona that the preacher takes to get into the hearts and the minds of those who are humanistic in their thinking. To ask them, how's it working for you? How is life without God? How is your life under the sun? I'll think like you think. I'll try what, what you've tried. And we'll come to the end. We'll come to the conclusion together. This book, Ecclesiastes, strikes me as one of the most important sermons a follower of Jesus Christ today can listen to all the way through. And if you haven't done it, go back. 
Go online. This is your homework assignment. Listen to every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night teaching through because Jesus has said something to I For me, He has said something to me that I did not expect walking through this, this study. And so I strongly encourage you all to do that. Again, if you haven't had the opportunity to. What's ironic is that this book does read like a postmodern manifesto written in the 10th century B.C. (laughs) How does that work? It works because man never really changes. Our language, our art, our culture may seem to shift and be different from time to time, but the heart of the human being does not change. We are as we have always been. But this book speaks in that tongue of the secular humanist, which was the same in the 10th century B.C. as it is today. But remember, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is on purpose. What I'm getting at is this. The book of Ecclesiastes is written in the language of the lost. And it's a language we would do well to understand better than we do. The language of the lost. We're all the same. You do your thing, I'll do mine, it doesn't really matter, we're all the same. Look back at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2. Kohalath says, it is the same for all. There's one faith for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. doesn't matter, we're all the same. Then I shared when we looked at this verse Wednesday night, man, if you just plopped that that verse, plucked it out of Scripture, you'd be saying, what? The Bible says that? You've got to be kidding. We're not all the same. It's not okay to be a swearer or not to be a swearer. You know, It's not okay to offer sacrifice, not to offer sacrifice. It's not all the same. Well, it is in the world in which we live. In the mindset of secularism, it's really no difference. You Christians try to set yourselves apart. You're no different than we are. And in many ways, they're right. Except there's something going on that is unseen. I've been born again. And internally, it's a marvelous thing. Externally, it's not always obvious, unfortunately. All we've got to do, the secularist would say, is live a good life. Look at verse 7 of chapter 9. Go, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. God has already approved your works. Which means, you're good. You're good to go. God looks at me. He knows I'm not a bad person. So, just all i got to do is be good. Just live the good life. Others would say, dude, it's just a roll of the dice. You know, everything's chance. Everything's happenstance. Verse 11 in chapter 9, again I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to the men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. The Bible says that? Yeah. In the language of the lost. I mean, where else in the Bible do you hear statements like this? Where else do you hear someone coming looking at considering God from the natural perspective. Everywhere else it tends to be from the supernatural or the spiritual perspective, looking down, explaining to us, drawing us up, but this one starts on the ground. This is street level stuff. By the time you hit chapter 9 in this book, humanism is on a roll. I had several questions before we opened up Ecclesiastes from people saying, I don't understand this verse. I don't get how that works. I, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. Listen, the preacher, Kohalath, 
isn't saying this is the way it is. He's saying this is the way people think it is. This is the way people assume it is. This is the way it is under the sun with no understanding of God and who He is and what truth is. This is the way life tends to be. And this is the mindset that we have been called to deal with. This is the mindset we came from, by the way. Don't forget where you came from before you came to Jesus. This is the mindset we are called to address. Why do we have to address it? Go back to chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, There is no creature hidden from His sight. Hebrews 4.13 All things are laid open and, and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. No one likes that judgment day scene that we have trumped up in our minds. I never liked it as a kid. The idea of judgment day. The long lines. Kind of like a bad day at Disneyland. You know? Long, long lines. And you can kind of see up there that when you get up there, there's a huge screen and God standing behind a massive pulpit with a gavel. And all of your sins flashing up on the screen. Boom! Hell! Boom! Okay, heaven! Boom! Hell! And it scared me. And I saw that picture. But you know what? That is not the point of judgment. It's not what God wants to do. The stunning conclusion of this sermon, and this is the point of judgment, gang, is just when we thought everything mattered, we discover with God, just when we thought nothing mattered, we discover with God everything mattered. Kohelet goes through saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Nothing really matters under the sun until we discover with the Lord, yes it does. It does. Every little thing you do matters to Him. Why? Because He's so hard-hearted and and judging everything? No. Because you matter to God. So everything you do matters to God. Parents, do you look at your kids and go, I don't really care what they do with their lives? Or do they matter to you? There's the slightest little thing. A good report card comes home and you're like, Hallelujah! You know? Or something goes wrong in their life. A little thing. And your, your heart breaks for them. See, that's Father God. And we talked about this five weeks ago, so I'm just kind of bringing you back to that. Kohalath leads us through the vanity of humanity to the absolute rock of an absolute truth in an absolute God for whom everything absolutely matters. And we're all headed there. And that's why the book lands where it does. That he will bring every act to judgment. Oh, that we could have the kind of passion for people that God does. Oh, that for me, my lost friends, my lost acquaintances, my lost associations, that those people, that everything in their lives would matter to me, instead of how so often it is, the shunning that tends to take place. You matter. I matter. He matters. She matters. Everyone matters to Jesus. So the big question, and what I want to talk about this morning, is what can I do about that? We have this thing called the Great Commission as Christians. What am I supposed to do about all this? Two kinds of people sit in the audience listening to the preaching of Kohala. Two kinds of people. There are those who already believe, which is right now the vast majority of us at the bridge. Those who already believe. And 
are a little confused by the preacher's cynicism. <laughs> we read it and we say, wow, this is awfully worldly. That's kind of secular. That's really not what I've been taught is the way it is in Jesus. So those who already believe are listening to this sermon. And those who don't believe, but they totally get what he's saying. I, I thought about that. If I was a non-believer and I sat down and started reading Ecclesiastes, I'd go, yeah, yeah, he's right on. He's speaking my language. I didn't know there was a book in the Bible that recognized life the way I see life. Cool. Not knowing all the while the preacher's going somewhere. The preacher's going somewhere. Continually asking that question, how's your life working out with no God? Or with a distant God? How are things working for you? How's it going? Listen, the space between the lost and the saved, the space between those who already believe and those who don't believe, it seems to be getting bigger. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. Oh, I'm not saying that we should behave more like the world. In fact, if you've been around here any amount of time, the thing that we continue to hear in Scripture is we need to be set apart. We need to look different from the world. We need to be people who are changed and transformed and sanctified. Not like so much of what we see around us. Why? So that we can lord it over? So that we can set up camps away from all that sin and muck and grossness of all those other people? No. Looking different so that we can engage and bring a difference to a lost and dying world. The saved tend to cling to our identity in a stormy world. While the lost, frankly, are often put off by the imposition of the moral legislation that the saved wants to impose. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek to be a moral nation. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, press for fair and right and legal moral representation. But what I am saying is that we have a greater commission than getting certain laws put on the books in America. Our greatest commission is to go to the lost. To those who are dying, who are going to go to hell when Jesus shows up, which could be any moment. That's our prime directive, you Trekkies. That's our prime directive. More than anything else, and all of the energy and all of the effort and all of the striving and stress that so often goes into the legislative process in our country with Christians, if we put one-tenth of that into loving lost people, what would happen? These are some of the things that I'm wondering. If we are going to fulfill our purpose as Jesus' people, we've got to do a better job understanding the lost. We've got to attempt to close that gap. Now, I'm I'm primarily talking to Jesus' people this morning. If you are not, uh, if, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, that's okay. I want you to listen in and judge what you're hearing. And feel free to talk to me about it after we're done. We know the conclusion. We know the conclusion. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to define the unrighteous in a way that would be offensive to some. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. What are fornicators? Anyone who has any kind of sex outside of marriage. Any. Premarital. Extramarital, 
post-marital? <laughs> any that is not within the sanctified marriage of a man and a woman before God, any sex outside of that, that's fornicators, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Don't be deceived. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous. Oh, I was doing so well. (laughs) Nor drunkards. We talked about that recently, so we're all right there. Nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Boy, I'm glad I'm not in that group. And then Paul goes, bam! Such were some of you. It's where you came from, man. That's where I came from. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let me sharpen the point. I don't think most Christians speak the big question defensively, but honestly. What do you mean? I think most of us, rather than saying, well, what can I do about it, Lord? I think most of us are saying, what can I do about it, Lord? What can I do? I mean, I'd like to make a difference. I just, how can we, from a barn on North Whidbey Island, make any difference in the big world about us? I'm so glad this barn is tucked away on the corner of Monkey Hill Road and Duckin Road. I'm so glad it's kind of back off the road a little bit. I'm so bad. You know, we have our own place. We have our own place to gather and to worship and to be safe from the wicked world outside. Besides, you know, how can we make any kind of difference? We have a book at home. It's one of my favorite children's books when I was a kid. And we picked it up and uh, it's out of print. It's called A Little Old Man. Man about A little story about a little old man living on an island. And here's the opening line from it. Once there was a little old man who lived in a little house on a little island in the middle of a great big ocean. (laughs) That's us. That's the church. That's this fellowship. Little church in a little barn on a little island in the middle of a great big ocean. And I'm not talking Pacific. I'm talking humanity. The sea of humanity. And from this place... You know, when God called us to start this fellowship, one of my first thoughts was, from here? Really? Because, Lord, I can go down to Southern California and there's a lot more people down there. Or at least plant us in Oak Harbor. That'd be good. There's people right there. No, I want you out in the middle of nowhere. Great. How are we going to have any impact from this particular location, from our little lives? How are we going to have any impact from our lives in Anacortes? Small town. Oak Harbor. Another small town. Coopville. Smaller town. LaConnor. Guimas Island. Mount Vernon. What can we do? And that's what I want to answer this morning. I want to address this. Four things I ask you to pray about and be thinking about. And the first one is openness. Openness. We need ears to hear. Ears to hear. You know the verse. Ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Jesus says that seven times in the opening pages of Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But that's not what I'm talking about. We need ears to hear the Spirit, absolutely. But we need ears to hear what the lost are saying. 
We need an openness to speak to and engage in the language and the lives of lost people. We need ears to hear. To understand where they're at, what they're going through, what life is like, and not to push it away, but to engage in it. But that's messy. Absolutely. Roll up your sleeves. Openness. Jesus had ears to hear. Turning your Bibles over to Matthew 15. It was the first time Jesus would actually leave Israelite territory, Israel proper, and He would head into Gentile territory. And this is where it took place, in Matthew 15. you got to remember, most of the book of Matthew, over the first half, Jesus came and He was going only to Jewish people. In Matthew chapter 10, when He sent out His apostles on a missionary journey, He said, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. You go to the lost sheep of Israel first. And this is the first time Jesus steps outside of that narrative, of that mission, Himself. And in chapter 15, verse 21, it says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Zidon. That would be the Lebanon area today. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. What is this lost woman saying? i got something going on in my house that I can't deal with. There's something bigger than me. Something hellish is happening at home. Help! Lots of people ask that question all the time. How do I deal with this? What do I do with this mess of my life or these things going on that, that are spinning out of my control? Man, when someone at work starts to ask you questions like that, the door is wide open for Jesus to walk in. How do I deal with this mess? Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Ouch. He blew her off. He just ignores her. His disciples came and implored him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. (laughs) Christian response. (laughs) that, That guy shows up and he's loud. He's annoying. She's a little offensive. She doesn't shower. (laughs) Send him away, because it's making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Jesus says in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. says this to this Canaanite woman. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, not the answer I would have expected. No, not the response of a good Christian pastor. Did you just call her a dog, Lord? Because that's kind of offensive, you know, in our culture. We're walking along and some nice lady walked in the door of the church and said, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'd like to hear what you have to say. And I said, get out of here, dog. And we keep dogs as pets. Imagine what it was like in their culture. What is going on? This is a great story. Because it shatters all the cheesy, passive, uh, preconceived notions of, of Jesus. And brings us into the reality of who He was. It shows us just how intentional He was and is with outsiders. 
He is acting and speaking with obvious and awesome intentionality here. At first, by completely ignoring the question. And then secondly, by saying it's not right to throw the children's bread to dogs. He is being completely intentional. Now, first of all, you need to understand this. There's symbolism here. When he says it's not good to uh, take the children's bread, well, the children are Israel. And the bread is Jesus Himself, the bread of life. And the dogs are Gentiles. Well, how do you know that? Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet and turn not and turn and tear you to pieces. Revelation 22.15 Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. The dogs are the outsiders. The dogs are those who do not belong. So is that what Jesus thinks of this poor, helpless, lost woman? No. There's a tender subtlety here. This is the bummer about having to translate is we can miss the subtleties. You see, the Greek word for dog in verses of judgment is kuon. Kuon. You know, the the scroungy, big, stupid, salivating mongrels. The ones who walk by you and there's hair and spit on your leg. That's that's kuon. The word he uses is different. The word he uses with her is kunarion. And kunarion means puppy. Little dog. And speaks to the cute kind of little dog that perhaps would be a pet, would be loved, would be cared for. There is a profound, understated affection in Jesus' word choice when He says what He says. Well, well, even so, Rick, what is Jesus up to? What is He saying here? He's not trying to demoralize the woman. He is drawing out faith. He's intentional. Drawing out faith. Watch this, verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then he said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. I mean, I can just see Jesus breaking out in a huge grin right then. Until then, he's being very austere and serious. He's kind of laying out the truth. It's not right to do this. And she says, oh, yeah, but, but even the puppies love the treats. And Jesus goes, Alright, we're there. Your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And let me just point out the supernatural here. He didn't go to the house to heal the daughter. He didn't even say your daughter is healed. He said it shall be done for you as you wish. She was well. I don't know how many miles away, just down the street, around the corner, next town, I don't know. But she was healed instantaneously. Now, gang, I guarantee you Jesus knew all along He was going to heal that little girl. I promise you that. But He had to deal with some other issues first. What did He have to deal with? He had to put away pretense. He had to put away pretense. Back in verse 22, she says, Lord, Son of David! It was a popular messianic title used among Jews expecting their Messiah. It was not a title for a Canaanite to use. It was a Jewish title for a Jewish Messiah. And she uses this probably assuming that he would respond to the religious lingo. She starts trying to talk the language that she thinks is going to work. And she's waiting for him, hoping to get a response, and he doesn't respond. Why? Because he's waiting for her to come to him as herself. Not as a false Jew, but as a real lost Canaanite. And she does. 
When she cries out, Lord, help me! All of the posing, all the religious jargon, it's gone. She is now in the place of the reality, okay, the title didn't work, i got to get some help here. There's nothing else to do but just cry for it. And she does, and that's when he turns and he begins to speak to her. He puts away pretense. And the second thing he does is he puts his plan in perspective. What do you mean? He says, listen, it's, it's Jews first. But that doesn't mean it's not Gentiles. He's, he's explaining something here that's marvelous. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Gospel has always gone to the Jew first. And then it goes to the Gentile. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11 if you're not sure about that. And then reread it again and ask yourself, why is this in the New Testament? It's there that us Gentiles would understand that the Gospel came to and through the Jewish people first. They matter to God. And Jesus explains this. Well, why did He need to explain this to this woman? Crying out in her pain. This woman, she's not worried about Jewish and Gentile relations. She's worried about her dying daughter here. So why does Jesus have to bring this up right now? I believe He did it, verse 27, to put her in the right place. To put her in the right place. And she says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the Master's table. She got it. She's saying, you know, I know I'm not an Israelite. I know you've come to them first, but I'll take whatever I can get. Your lost friend says, I know I'm not a Christian, but could you pray for me? Yes! I will pray for you. I know I'm not really a church-going person, but can you help me with this? Absolutely. Let's start understanding right where we are. No pretense, no games. No one comes to Jesus deserving. Everyone comes to Jesus believing. That's the issue. Do you deserve to be a part of this fellowship? Well, look around. Anybody deserves to be a part of this fellowship. We don't come to Him because we have gotten it together. We come to Him when we finally realize that He alone is the answer that we seek. There really is no other hope. I'm at the end of my rope. Lord Jesus, help. Help. The Lord said in Jeremiah 29.13, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. And by the end of the conversation, what's marvelous is the Canaanite woman had changed. It had changed to faith. She's in the place of faith. Now she's talking reality. I just need some of what you've got. She's just speaking to him directly. Lord, just, just help me out here. I want what I see that you have. Did you see how Jesus got her there? He used his he listened to her first, listened. And then secondly, he gently drew out her need, and ultimately he made it personal. He got right back to the heart of what was going on. He did not play church. He did not play religion. He just did the truth. And by the time that woman left, she was not a mama whose daughter was healed. She was a woman whose heart had been heard. And we need an openness like Jesus had to hear the language of the lost. Open to where people are at and not afraid of the sin that's hanging all off their bodies. But recognizing this is the deal. This is the world that we've been called to talk to, to deal with, to hear. 
I could give hundreds of other examples of how Jesus listened to the lost. In fact, it's one of the things that got him so in so much trouble with all the, the religious people of his day. They hated the fact that he hung out with lost people. They didn't like the fact that he was going into these messy places where no good-thinking Jew belonged, or no good-thinking Christian should go in there. But Jesus was. For the purpose of listening to the lost. You know, I've, I've spoken out somewhat vociferously against the Brown Lantern in Anacortes as a, as a place, of, a, an eating, dining, drinking establishment. Tell you what, if you're showing up there at 9 o'clock on Friday nights where the bar is open and the drinking's going on, if you're showing up there to purchase yourself a Pepsi and talk about and listen to share Jesus, well, that's a completely different thing. Go. Go hang out if you're there to make a difference. Or anywhere in this world that, that we might be uncomfortable with. If God's calling you to be in that place to be a presence for the Lord Jesus, then, then go. Lord, give us ears to hear like you heard. So we need openness. Secondly, we need emptiness. Emptiness. We need to make room for the miraculous to take place. Because we're too full of other things. We need to make room. Let me give you some background. If you have your Bibles open, turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 3. Jehoram is the grandson of Ahab, and he's the king of Israel at the time this story takes place. And the Boabites, who were paying tribute to Israel, had stopped paying their tribute in rebellion. So Jehoram says, that's it, they're not paying the tribute, we're going to take them down. And so he goes down, king of Israel goes down to the king of Judah, who at the time was Jehoshaphat. And Jehoram says, Jehoshaphat, got to come with me, bro, we got to fight the Moabites, take them out, because they're not paying the tribute, let's get together and do this thing and so they muster the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and they go after the Moabites, and that's where the story picks up. Chapter 3, 2 Kings, verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. And then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three things to give them into the hand of the three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So now Jehoram, the king of Israel, is despairing. They've got thirsty soldiers, thirsty cattle. Why are the cattle there? Barbecue. (laughs) That's that's the food, you know. Back in those days, they didn't have to pack it on trucks. It just walked along beside them, you know, behind them. So bring along the barbecue. And everybody needs to drink. Everybody's thirsty. And Jehoram goes, oh, we're dead. This is it. This is a big mistake. But Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, he had some errors there, but he was a good guy. He said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. What does that mean? He was Elijah's protege, his servant, and then along comes Elisha after him. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? (laughs) Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother 
What's he saying? Go to your pagan gods who you believe in because, well, Jehoram was pretty pagan. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. So he's still whining over here. Oh, we're all going to die. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Take that to heart. Right there is a reason for righteousness. That the Lord would regard you and answer your prayer. And God would look at you like Elisha looked at Jehoshaphat and say, Oh yeah, I see that these people are here messed up in this city of Anacortes. But I see Don there. I see Don there in Starbucks. Not thrilled with Starbucks, but Don is there. (laughs) And he's there meeting with those guys. And for the sake of Don... I'm going to start cracking open hearts. Well, here we are. Elisha says, for the sake of Jehoshaphat. And then he says, verse 15, But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. A unique connection there between worship, music ministry, and prophecy. We won't talk about that right now. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water so that you can drink both you and your barbecue and your beasts. <laughs> Verse 18. This is but a slight thing in the, in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And then you shall strike every fortified city, every choice city, and fell every good tree, and stop all springs of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it happened, verse 20, in the morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, that behold, water came by the way of Eden, and the country was filled with water. Amen. Isn't that a great story? I went back and looked at old notes from our, from our studies in Second King. Man, we blew right by that one. That's a great story. Why is it in there? What's the point? What did the Lord require to quench their thirst? Foxholes. Dig foxholes, but, but not for fighting. Dig trenches for quenches. <laughs> That's it. Trenches for quenches. The Lord, you know what? He could have done anything here. He could have sent down a nice downpour. <laughs> Fill up your buckets. He could have filled their canteens from the inside out. That would have been a cool miracle. Have them in check their canteens. It's filling up! <laughs> Hallelujah! He didn't do that. He could have. He could have dropped Ethos water bottles from the sky. I mean, he could have done anything. <laughs> oh, okay, God, we got it. <laughs> we understand now. But he said, I want you to be part of what I'm going to do. I want you to dig so that I can fill. Why did He do it this way? Because before something can be filled, it needs to be emptied. And what's going on here, gang, get this, natural space needed to be made for the supernatural to take place. Natural space for the supernatural to take place. How many cubic feet of water Uh, would the armies of Israel and Judah get in the deal? How many cubic feet? Anyone guess? As many cubic feet as they dug. As much as they dug, or as little as they dug. You want a lot of water? Dig big. Create a lot of trenches. And I will fill them all. But whatever you don't dig, whatever stays full, I'm not going to be able to, to fill up. 
If I want this natural man to be filled with the supernatural spirit of God, I've got to empty out the dirt. I've got to make room. I've got to stop spending so much time on me. The more you want to be filled with the Spirit, the more you have to empty out the flesh. Amen? And that's a very spiritual principle. Spiritually, again, we, we've got to, as a fellowship, we've got to start making some decisions about how we're living our personal lives. Not how we're living life in the barn, but when we leave, and, and when we walk, and when we go to work, and when we're at home, we've got to be asking God, Am I empty, empty me out, Lord. Empty me out to fill me with your Spirit. Galatians 5.24 Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Empty me, Lord. We sang the song. Love the song. Empty me. Oh, won't you empty me now? Because I want more, I want more, I want more of you, Jesus. But He's only going to fill up that much space that is emptied out. But please understand that it is not just about being filled for our own sake. If that's what we think, then we will drown right here in this barn and do no good in this world. It's about more than that. David said in Psalm 51.12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Why, David? Next verse. Psalm 51.13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. When I'm empty and full of you, then I can have an impact in this world. Then I can be a useful vessel for your ministry, Lord. So spiritually, if we want to impact the world, we've got to be empty of ourselves, filled with His Spirit. There's no other way we're going to make a dent in the lostness of this planet. But practically... And there's something else here I want you to think about. People don't like to think about this. Some I've had several conversations with people about, about this very thing. Practically speaking, we have got to make some room in our fellowship. Because God is not going to fill what is already full. We've got to make some room. Did you know, Corey's senior year of high school, my son's now a sophomore in college, his senior year of high school, he spent the entire year rooming with his younger 11-year-old brother, Hayden. How many senior guys in high school want to room with their little brother if they don't have to? And that's the point. He didn't have to. So there's Corey and Hayden's room, and then there's a room right next to it that was completely empty his entire senior year. Well, that's weird. Take the room, dude. Why didn't he? Because we were making room at home. We were expecting three children to join our family. We had no idea when they were going to come. So we cleaned out the room, prepared that one for the little ones. Hayden and Corey moved in, shared a room together. We made space. Why the whole year? Because again, we had no idea when we were going to get the call that we could go get the kids and bring them home. And so ironically, they spent the whole year waiting with an empty room. But it's a great picture of us waiting. We don't know when Jesus is going to come, but we really need to room together and empty out a room so that the Lord can fill it. Because we don't know when He's going to. January 10th, 2004, I will never forget the day we're here uh, cleaning out this barn. It was great. It was a Saturday and, and like the joy that Joe mentioned in the house down here of the last three Saturdays of people in there cleaning and, and getting it all ready for kids, uh, about 12 of us, Rod, 
10, 12 of us came into the barn. you got to picture this with me. A wall was right there. Another wall was right here. It's just a long barn. It was filled with hay. There was the, the rope that you see still up there. I love the rope. was hanging down. There was a, a baseball pitch back over here. There was a tractor in here. It was just it was a barn. It was a functional hay barn. That's what they were using it for. And we came in here that Saturday morning with brooms and sweeps and, and just kind of swept the whole place out, cleaned it out, took all the hay. And I don't remember if we opened up one of the walls or we just carried it around, but all the hay went into that area where you guys are sitting. It was full of hay. Put it all over there. We left like two rows of haystacks all along the back here for the children and the rats to sit on during worship. (laughs) And our worship team was right over here on this side. And that was January the 10th. We had started just three months before, 20 of us in the living room. January the 11th, Sunday morning, 65 people showed up. I did not expect that. I thought, yeah, we're in 2025. Sometimes on a good Wednesday we had 30 people, so I figured 30 or 40 people would be cool. 65 people showed up. And then, well, we opened up this wing because it got full. And then we opened up that wing because it got full. And then we added a second service because it got full. And now we've added a satellite campus. <laughs> right, Brian? Brian calls me the other day out of the blue. Hey, I got a name for the for the White House down there. What should, I, I know what we should call it. What? Satellite campus. Have a great day. Click. <laughs> it's marvelous. We need more room. We need more room. We need to empty out. It can't wait for a building to be built. And gang, I've been putting this off. But we got to add a third service. Praise God. I don't want to. <laughs> Praise God. But we, we need to. Well, yeah, but Rick, you had a third service. What if only three or four people come? Great. What if 65 come? So I don't. I'm, to, the date is going to be uh, to be announced. There are a couple things we, we need to uh, get in order. The first thing is to be praying about this. I want to pray about it before we do it, not do it, and then ask God to fill. Let's be praying, and I'm asking you all pray that the Lord will fill a third service at the bridge. And would you pray that He would begin to fill it more and more with people who don't know Jesus? Some of you may want to shift to it. I'm thinking 5 o'clock on a Sunday evening. So we'll just do 3, and it'll be the same service as Sunday morning. Some of you may say, hey, you know what? I'll give up my chair Sunday morning. I'll make some space there and and show up at 5 o'clock Sunday evening, and I'll, I'll have worship at that time. Great. Fantastic. We need to make room. And we need to make room expecting people to come. Expecting God to fill that room. Two questions immediately come up. Whoa. What if we do this and next thing you know we're too big? I don't like big churches, Rick. That's why I came to the bridge. I like the little barn. I like the intimacy of close fellowship. I don't like big churches. Well, first off, let me just say this. If you don't like big churches, you would have hated the church in A.D. 33. Because day one, they started with 3,000 people. That was the church right off the bat. Oh. Acts 2.46 tells us that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, yeah, but that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a small town. 3,000 people. That's how it began. 
There was no option. Well, I just want to have my little seven-person house church. Tough. And they did have house churches, but they also met in the temple together. Why? Corporate worship. Large gatherings of praise. You know, there's nothing like a bunch of people worshiping God together. There's power in that. It's encouraging. They gathered together to hear the apostles' teaching. Good stuff. Men who were learned in the Word of God, studying the Word of God and praying through the Word of God all week long so that they could gather the people and teach from it. So that the people then could go back to their house churches and their lives and their businesses and their communities and live out, having been equipped. We need to understand this. Sundays together, even Wednesday nights here at the bridge, even now, are not about intimacy, gang. Well, there's some of that that goes on. You see people you know, people you love, you want to talk to, wonderful, there are hugs all around, great. But those times are times of training. Intimacy happens in and out of each other's lives, in each other's homes through the week. Praise and worship. Teaching and training. Encouragement and exhortation. That happens when we gather as a body. And both matter. And both are important. So you want to have a big church? I I want to have the church that God wants to have. And it doesn't matter to me. The numbers don't matter to me. I've been at a big church. I've worked at a big church. So it's not an ego thing. Whatever. But the issue remains that if we're doing what we're called to do, we should still be growing. The trenches should be filling. The empty services should be getting full. Uh, Small groups should be popping up everywhere. This should be going on if we're doing what we've been called to do. And by the way, we can't do that unless we have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in us. He's called us to an impossible task, but with God, nothing is impossible. By the way, if you are opposed to large worship gatherings, you're not going to like heaven very much. (laughs) Revelation 19.1, John says, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The Greek word for multitude means a lot of people. (laughs) Multitude. So I'll make a deal with you. And the deal is this. This fellowship will be no larger or smaller than God wants it to be. Amen? Amen? Let's just do what He's called us to do and make room expecting people to be saved by the love of God. Which is why we're here. We've got to make room. Another question that's asked is, well, what if we open up space and it doesn't fill up? Won't we look foolish? Point number three. Foolishness. Foolishness. We need to embrace the message we preach. We need to be willing to look foolish for the sake of Jesus Christ. Foolishness. We need to look the part, walk the part, talk the part, and not be ashamed of the part. Look over at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. He said there were going to be four things we've done two. This is the third, and it's almost an hour. I know. Stay with me. (laughs) Matthew chapter 4. I want to show you something that is absolutely foolish. See if you can catch this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, 
He came and settled in Capernaum, by the way, a small town. You should see it. Really, you should see it. Go on the Israel trip with us. <laughs> Which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Up there kind of in the you know, Gentile area of Israel. This was, verse 14, to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, Galil, just means the region. The region of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, Isaiah prophesied. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Before we go another step, gang, the message is to go into dark places. The message of the Gospel of Jesus is a message for people who are absolutely lost and hopeless and helpless. The land in the shadow of death, the Bible calls it. Upon them a light dawned. Watch this, verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you see it? The foolishness? It's right there. Um... The kingdom of heaven? (laughs) How about the empire of Rome, Jesus? What are you talking about? Rome is worldwide. I'm sorry, but, but all our polling data suggests that Rome has the next several decades worth of elections pretty well locked up. And you're talking about a kingdom? And you're saying the kingdom is at hand? The first message out of Jesus' mouth was utter nonsense. It was ridiculous. It was a message the Jewish people had been longing for and waiting for, but at that day and age and time, it was completely ridiculous. Foolishness. Message of a coming kingdom during a worldwide oppressive regime. Well, that's just plain foolish. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.21, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its, fool, its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you know it has always been a foolish message? You've just been listening to it long enough that it kind of makes sense. But if you were brand new in the door this morning and you heard for the first time the message of the Gospel of Jesus, you'd go, Wow, that's kind of weird. You're telling me God put on flesh and walked among us for three years in Podunk town and was killed and then rose back to life and now wants us to all be saved? That's kind of weird. Yeah, it's the only message we've got. (laughs) I don't have another one. i got nothing else to tell you. It has always been a foolish message against all odds, however. It rings true like eternity in our hearts. That's the deal. When we hear the pure, unadulterated message of the Gospel of Jesus, when people hear that, they go, I can breathe. That message is foolish, but it makes makes sense. It's what I need. It's what I've been missing. The foolish message... By the way, i got to mention this. Today, October 2nd, has been dubbed Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Since 1950, the Johnson Amendment, which banned partisan political activity on the part of nonprofit organizations, has been applied by the IRS to churches and even to the content of sermons, taking away the freedom of speech from the pulpits of our churches. 
Now that's been going on for a long time, and probably you've heard, well, that's, you shouldn't mix religion and politics. Don't put those two things together. I don't like when I go to church and the pastor starts talking politics. Where else are you going to hear the truth? And so here it is October 2nd. I got this thing too late. I'd already studied and I already knew exactly what the Lord wanted us to talk about this morning. So they're asking for any pastors who want to to do a political message and talk about the candidates and do it from a biblical perspective this morning, and I just don't have time. <laughs> Besides, if, if we do, we could lose our tax-free, our tax-exempt status as a nonprofit if we talk about the candidates. You know what? If the foolish truth counters a political candidate or a message, tax me. Whatever. It's not about the freedom to spout politics. It's about the truth. And I'm going to tell you something that's truth today that may offend somebody here. I cannot and will not vote for Mitt Romney or John Huntsman. I'm just telling you right now. Why not, Rick? They could be the winning candidate. He could be the guy that beats Obama. Whatever. I can't vote for either one of them. Why? They're Mormon. <gasps> oh, So you are anti-Mormon. No, I just have trouble voting for any president who doesn't believe in the God that this country was found in believing in. That's right. Offensive? Sure. Probably. It's the truth. Study Mormonism. It's a polytheistic God, plenty of gods, all kinds of gods. Everybody can be God. And as far as I understand, by this word, there is one God. And He's the true God. And I would rather vote for some nutcase who at least believes in the one true God. I'm not giving names for the nutcase, okay? But I strongly urge you as voters in America to look seriously at what candidates believe, not politically, but biblically. What do they believe? You know what? Mitt Romney's got a lot of good stuff going for him. He's a sharp businessman. He could do a lot of good for the country, but he does not share faith in my God. And neither does John Huntsman. So as far as I'm concerned, they're out. You have to make that choice. And there goes our tax-exempt status. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, verse 16, again says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is the power. The message is the power. And we need to take that message with no fear... The government can do whatever it wants. People can say whatever they want. We can come under persecution for it. We need to come under persecution for it, frankly. But we need to take the message of truth without fear. That's what we've been called to. If the foolish message is offensive, so be it. Jesus refused to retool His message when it got offensive. You know, He didn't say, Oh, that's upsetting people. Let's go back and think this through. Is there a better way to say this? Why don't we just reword it in a softer language? No, we're told in John chapter 6, verse 66. Note that, it's, it's verse 666. I think it's interesting. That as a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. John 6, 66. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? He doesn't say to the twelve, Guys, help me recraft the message because we're missing it here. We're losing people. Stop him. No. It is what it is. 
And when you go to the lost, you take the message as it is. You don't water it down. You don't candy coat it. You give them the truth. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that counterintuitive? If the message is foolish and even oppressive, shouldn't we change it? No, because it's the message that God chose to give. It is the message that He said, this is what I want the world to hear because this will save the world. Back in uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 11, note this. The words of wise men are like goats. By the way, this, this verse is the reason why I believe personally we will see Solomon in heaven. And I'm going back on something I said prior to this when we studied through the kings. Because I said, I'm not sure if we're going to see Solomon there. Because his wives turned his heart away and he didn't follow after God like his father David had done. No, he didn't. But that doesn't mean that he completely stopped following after God. Listen to what he says. The word, And this is old Solomon. The words of wise men are like goads. And masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. One shepherd gives the message of the truth. And that shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd is Jesus Christ. And Solomon recognizes this. Koheleth preaches it. At the end, when it's all said and done, the conclusion, the final matter, brings us back to the one shepherd. How foolish did the good shepherd look with well-driven nails in his hands? And how foolish was his messianic claim then as he hung up on the cross for everybody to laugh at and spit at? How foolish did the Roman guard feel when they had to slink back into town and say, body's missing. It's not there. They had to tell the Jewish leaders that Jesus had left the building. (laughs) So the question is, who here is willing to look foolish for the sake of the Gospel? Who's willing to stick their neck out? Who, who will dance like David danced? Who will pray in labor position like Elijah did? That's a foolish thing. Elijah the prophet began to pray. says he got down in the birthing position. People today call it birthing prayer. It was just Elijah praying with everything that he had that the truth of God might be birthed in that land. Who will preach naked like Isaiah? Not me. <laughs> Thank you for your support. (laughs) Gang, the point is, it doesn't matter who the messenger is at all. The point is the message. And the message is a foolish message. Let me read this to you quickly. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but listen, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. If anything moves you, if anything motivates you, and what we're talking about this morning is the power of the Word of God and His Holy Spirit. It is the message, not the messenger. And he is calling this church to openness, to really care about the lost, listening, engaging, and making room for people in our culture to come to Jesus. Emptiness. 
Room in our hearts, room in our fellowship. Foolishness. The message of a once dead king, now alive, on the verge of instituting his kingdom. And by the way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, most assuredly, any moment. Fourth and final thing. Fourth and final thing. Earnestness. Earnestness. We need hearts beating out urgent prayer. Because all that we've talked about will not do a thing if we are not entrusting every moment to the Spirit of God. We've got to be praying fervently about this. God, we want to be a vessel to be used to reach lost people. We don't want to be a transfer church. Now, if you're transferred here, you're welcome. You're embraced. You're loved. But that's not the purpose of the bridge. And I've been saying this for eight years. This is not the purpose of this fellowship to be a church of transfers. It is a, the purpose is a church of lost, messy people finding Jesus and being saved. So that they can say, such was I <laughs> once, but not anymore. I've shared a couple of times midweek. I'm reading Hudson Taylor's retrospective. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China back in the latter part of the 1800s, early 1900s. And, and Hudson Taylor wrote this uh, journal. And my favorite thing he said so far, he wrote in 1851, two years before he went to China. And he said the following. He said, When I get out to China, I shall have no claim on anyone for anything. My only claim will be on God. How important, therefore, to learn before leaving England to move man through God by prayer alone. That's awesome. To move man through God by prayer. How do you motivate someone to eternal salvation? You pray that God would move them. You pray that the Spirit of God would be igniting hearts. Jesus says when He comes... He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's the convictor. He's the comforter. So we need to be praying to the Lord that He will move man. Because that's the work of the Spirit. How earnestly are we praying for salvation for God's people? Wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. What do you mean God's people? We're God's people, right. But we weren't always. I heard this said last week, and I really like this. God's people, who are not yet God's people, will be God's people. You see, you're sitting here this morning as part of God's people, but you used to not be God's people, and yet even then God knew that you were going to be God's people. Does that make sense? So instead of looking at the world around us as lost sinners, no, they may be God's people too. They just don't know it yet. They need Jesus so that they can be God's people. And God already knows. How wonderful to have His vision looking at the whole vast world and saying, there's one, there's one, there goes one, there's one over there, another one there. Somebody go talk to them because they don't know yet. Go get them. Because my people are everywhere. Praying earnestly, fervently, aching in our hearts as we pray For the lost, because the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Does that unnerve anybody just a little? 
not regarding your salvation, not regarding your judgment, if you know Jesus, I say this all the time, your judgment happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary. If you're in Christ. Debt's been paid. The gavel has landed. You're saved. But this should unnerve us that judgment is coming for any and everyone who does not know Jesus Christ. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Beseech, Jesus says. It's not a word we use a lot. Cheryl, I beseech thee, make me a sandwich. (laughs) The word beseech, I had to look it up, because again, it's one of those funky words. Beseech. It's deomai in the Greek. The root word literally means, listen, to bind. To bind. What did Jesus say? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, bind the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to His harvest. Wow. When was the last time you prayed urgently to bind God to His promise to bring in the harvest? Lord, I am binding you to what you said. You want to bring in a harvest of lost people. I bind you to that promise, Lord Jesus, in your name. You think God's going to go, you think it will bind me? (laughs) Don't think so. No. The Lord will say, absolutely, that's what I want. I want people calling me out to my promise to save the lost. So call me on it. Call me. Call me. I mean, just please, somebody, cry out for the lost. And bind me to that promise, because when it all comes down, as I said earlier, everything under the sun matters to Jesus Christ. Everything matters. John says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5.12 He wrote in 1 John 2, verse 2, He Himself, Jesus, is the propitiation of our sins. And not for all ours only, listen to this, but for those of the whole world. What does that mean? It means the whole world is forgiven. Universal salvation? No. It means the whole world is already forgiven. We just have to accept it. The price Jesus paid at Calvary, He didn't just pay for Christian people who figured it out. The price He paid, brutal and bloody and extreme, was for everybody, whether they know it or not. Whether they receive it or not. Now, if you don't receive it, you're outside of it. And there is no hope. But Jesus did everything that needed to be done. It is finished, He said. And that's the deal. And that, by the way, is where Kohalath has been going for the last five weeks. That is the apex that He's leading us to, that He brings everybody to. Ultimately, everything under the sun, vanity, so we need the sun. We need Jesus desperately. If you don't have the sun, you don't have life. If you have the sun... You have life. By the way, now and eternally. That's the great news. Eternity starts right now for people who know Jesus. I'm already in eternity. I'm already walking eternal. I don't always feel like it, but I am. And I'll tell you something else before we close. If you belong to church, but you don't belong to Christ, you are in the same dark boat as the humanist. Don't fool yourself. 
Don't think that by showing up and sitting down and mouthing the songs and carrying around a Bible that you're saved. You're only saved if you know Jesus. And it really is that simple. You're only saved if He is your Savior. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for men once to die and after this judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the first judgment day was at the cross, He will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await Him. The second time He appears, that's the second judgment, which is final judgment. Openness to care about the lost. Emptiness, room in our hearts, room in our fellowship. Foolishness, to preach the message of our risen King. And earnestness, praying to move men by God through prayer. And this is the message that I believe the Lord has for us this morning. Let's get the message out. Don't sleep through it. Jesus, we need Your grace to accomplish anything. Father, we call upon Your Holy Spirit to fill us. And Lord, we commit to You, we will empty our lives of things that get in the way. We will empty our lives of those unholy things that would stop up the work of Your Spirit in us. Empty us out, Father. And fill us, Holy Spirit. And fill our mouths with the message of foolishness. And Lord Jesus, timidly and humbly before You, we, we pray that we might bind You to Your promise to bring in a harvest. We will be the workers. Send out Your workers for the sake of the harvest. It's only by Your supernatural power that this will be accomplished. We know this. And so we come to You saying, Lord, help us. Help us accomplish Your will. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand up together.